0: Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, which was never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalogue of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode.
1: Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. Hello, everyone. My name's Liz Murphy, and you're expecting me to say, and across way here is Dr Mim Fox. Well, no, you're in for a surprise. Mim is actually in Fiji at the moment with a bunch of social work students podcasting. Gosh, she leads a hard life, doesn't she? But across the way from me is the wonderful Joe McElveen, Bereavement Coordinator for Southeastern Sydney Local Health District. Hello, Joe McElveen.
2: Hello Liz, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to talk today.
1: Me too, because this is um, right in your area of passion and expertise, Joe. Today we're actually listening to a, a really creative story on memory making in the end of life space with an adult. So, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, memory making and, and why we actually are interested in it in relation to grief? So,
2: thanks, Liz. That's such a great question. I wanted to just point out that first off, memory making is a really wonderful opportunity to explore the reality of death as a natural part of life and normalise that. And by doing this, we um, help build death literacy within our communities, but also grief literacy. But before we get on to what's happening in the memory making space now, I just wanted to mention that when you asked me to participate in this conversation, I was having a think about and a look at some of the literature that's out there. And interestingly, memory making started in the Victorian times in Britain, which is really um, a curious thing. Many of us, uh, Many of you may already know that. And it's called Memento Mori. And it was an art using a range of methods to preserve their loved ones' memories, including symbolic carvings and inscriptions, death masks, trinkets and keepsakes, such as locks of hair, bone fragments, um, and different texts, as well as um, post-mortem photography. So it's been around for a really long time, and I'm not sure what's happened between Victorian times and now, but certainly now, post-COVID, there is a huge... um, demand for memory making. It's a really important part of the end of life processes, particularly in the acute hospital space where I mostly work. Uh, It happens a lot in hospice as well, palliative care. Um, But since COVID and people not being able to come and spend time with their loved ones who were dying or being able to uh, be present at that point in time, hospital social workers took on the challenge of how do we Um, enable families to feel connected to their loved one during end of life and that was where memory making um, was thought would be useful for people that couldn't get into the hospital and couldn't visit their loved ones that they could um, instead be using technology, photography, locks of hair, printing, thumbprints um, any type of creative medium to capture what was happening at that time. And it's not in it's not across all health districts that they're offering memory making, but certainly uh, in in my health district it's very important and it's actually part of the end of life orientation that I do with with new social workers starting, normalizing that as well as our psychosocial spiritual assessments that we're doing with patients and families at end of life, we're also offering memory-making. And what I love about memory-making when I was thinking about it, and I hadn't thought about this before, so memory-making, it's an active, um, active thing to do with someone. It's not a passive thing. And I think for social workers, often we like to be solution-focused and we like to be task-oriented. And so this um, undertaking of something active is both empowering for patients, families, and the social worker themselves.
1: Joe, that is so interesting. I always get excited when I hear about the impact of something and and its relationship to change of practice. So what you're actually describing is something, uh, memory making was something that was done many years ago. And we know that as social workers, we've been using memory making in the neonatal death space. But you're talking about as a result of COVID memory making in the adult space that was created or used again because families couldn't get to bedside when their person was dying. But it's actually continuing on, so it's kind of like one of those another little happy accident that happened as a result of COVID. And I love that we're hearing about contemporary practice that's morphing as as we speak, Joe. Um, and Joe, so what we're about to hear now is a is a social worker that is practicing memory making, and it's an interesting one because. For some of the memory making that we hear, the person has already passed away. But in this story, the patient is alive and actively engaging with the family in the making of memory making or mementos. Um, And so... I reckon we'll, we'll launch into it. But what I wanted to encourage our listeners, Jo, is to listen to the actual process because this is a real how-to piece, I reckon, isn't it? She steps it through beautifully. She gives examples of the language that she uses and how she introduces the idea of memory-making with this patient. Uh, how she offers options um, and how it is so much more about the process than the actual product. Yes, memento is very important, but listen to how this social worker facilitates a beautiful process that, in fact, the patient and the family take on board, that they, they eventually take ownership of it and really work with it beautifully. Don't you reckon, Jo?
2: Oh, it's a wonderful um, podcast recording and an excellent story. And not only does she capture what happens with memory making, but she really explores what's happening for, at end of life for that person as well, um, from, from when that decision is made, which is a really interesting thing for people to hear, um, because that's not a simple thing either. Um, yeah, she really sets the scene beautifully and allows us to reflect on our own practice and think about what we can be doing to meet people's cultural and social needs at end of
1: life. Beautiful. What a great segue, Joe. So let's listen to it and we'll come back and have some more reflections.
3: Hi. So I'm a social worker working in one of the uh, big trauma hospitals here in Sydney Um, And so I'm here to talk about memory making and what I do in my clinical practice. So normally with memory making, it comes about um, after we've had some family discussions Um, regarding uh, normally stopping treatment. So for this particular case, we had noticed this patient had increase in frailty. She had um, a lot more admissions to hospital and the medical team wanted to discuss with her and her family about what her quality of life was coming to um, as she had those increase in hospital admissions. So we had a family meeting Um, And after that family meeting, the decision was for her to stop all forms of treatment and change to what we call comfort measures. Um, So the nurse and myself, we had a conversation, the palliative care nurse, um, and I had a conversation with the medical team um, regarding where we would like to do this end of life. Um, And we met with the family. We discussed kind of three different options that we look at, we explore. Um, So one is returning home for end of life where she can have all her family and all her friends. We connect her with our community palliative care team. Um, Or we can go and look, move into like a hospice type centre. Um, where they have palliative care nurses there that can provide all that support or she can remain in the hospital where she's been receiving her treatment over the many years um, where she's around, surrounded by all of her nurses that have cared for her. So after having that conversation with the patient and her family, their wishes was to remain in hospital. Um, The patient thought she'd been coming to this hospital for many, many years with all of her treatments. And she felt that it was the right place where she could be well supported by the people that she knew that would take special care of her. Um, And the family were very comfortable with that decision as well. So I kind of had that conversation with them about making the room that they're going to move into less clinical. So in a hospital setting, there's lots of noises and There's lots of different machines in the rooms, and we just kind of remove all of that and really make it something that is hers for those last few days or weeks or however long the process takes. So, when we um, talked to her, we said, you know, bring some photos in, or, you know, if you've got grandchildren, get them to paint or put, you know, their pictures up on the walls, bring your own blankets and pillows in, and make it your own bedroom for. Your time, and we bring in like an extra bed for the family so they can stay there overnight and be with her as as long as she wants them to be. Um, So the following day, I kind of um, went into the patient's room, and she had it very set up, and it was very cozy. And she was lying in bed with her favorite blanket on, and she had granddaughter's paintings that she originally had in her bedroom. She'd brought in um, to her room here at the hospital. Um, And I kind of said to her, what's the most important thing to you at this time? Um, And she said, I just want to spend as much time as I can with my family. Um, And I said, okay. And I said, well, what what does that look like to you? And she said, "Oh, she goes, I just, I know they're very emotional about what's happening. um, And, you know, they're already grieving, you know, the fact that she will pass away. And she's anxious about the process and anxious about what this is going to look like. And I said – and so I reflected with her about, you know, her reasons for making this decision and, you know, she says it's the right decision to be made but just very anxious about it and wants, you know, to take the pain away from her children because um, she knows that this is a painful time for them um, an emotional time. So, because she's always been the rock of the family um, so I said to her, well, why don't we do some memory making? Um, and so I know she's got a da- granddaughter um, and a grandson and a few others, um, family members, like extended family members. And I said, why don't we do some memory making with them? And then this can be a time where you guys can all come together and all spend the time together and not be in this clinical setting and take the... Time to just spend with the family and not think about the fact that you're gonna pass away. Um, and she said, well, what does memory making look like? And I said, so what we can do is we can come into the room all together and I can bring lots of different colors of paints and we can do some hand prints or we could do some footprints. I've had patients do footprints before or we could do some thumb prints um, and we can have just yourself and the your loved ones hand prints together. Or can just have your handprint. It really depends on what you guys want as a family. There's also little locks of hair that we do. And we can also give you, we've got little love hearts that our volunteers um, make. And so we um, talk about this as a continuing bond. um, And we can give you a love heart. We can give each family member a love heart. And so then whenever they squeeze and hold that, they always think about you or a special memory of you. So she said, yep, I want to do that. I want to do some arts and craft with my family. She you know, spent time reflecting on how she used to do arts and craft with her children when they were growing up and with her you know grandchildren now and that's a special memory she has and um, reflects that her family are a bit of arty. So this was something that she really wanted to pursue. So I said, perfect. So I'm happy to come back the next day. So come in the next day with all my different arts and crafts and glitter and paintbrushes and everything and meet with the daughters um and the sons and extended family there was lots and lots of family there they kind of the fam- the children had caught upon all everybody and said oh we're going to do some arts and crafts so there was lots of people in the room um and everybody had a different color you know some wanted pinks and purples and greens and yellows so um everyone's a bit anxious about how to start. So I kind of got into the room. The room was a little bit dark um, because she likes it being quite dark, the patient. Um, And then what we did was I said, let's pop some music on. Let's kind of bring the vibe up a little bit. Um, And that also takes it away from everyone just going to be standing there painting, Um, but it also lets people just relax. So I said, you know, spoke to the patient, what was her favourite music, Um, So we popped that music on and then I set everything up. Um, And so I always do the first one just so the family are aware of how to do it. And I said, you're not going to hurt them at all. She was able to sit up. So I think it's really important for when I do memory making, I always make sure I try my hardest to do it when the patient's still a little bit alert so then they can really participate in that memory making and they can really grow those strong connections, which is the whole point of memory making, you know, because with continuing bonds, grief is something that will always become a part of you and you're always going to be with your loved one. And I think it's really important that they've got this memory that they can make with their family and their loved ones um, to help with their grief. So... We, um, I set it all up, propped on the kind of the edge of the bed um, so she could easily put her hand, because she was doing handprints, on the piece of paper. So we just have um, little A3 pieces of paper um, and I just grabbed the paintbrush. Some family members will um, do it with just their fingers um, but as a clinician I always do it with a paintbrush and so choose her favourite colour, paint her hand. First one always is always a little bit wet so you just place it down on the piece of paper, hold it for a few seconds and lift it back up um, and then do it again. Um, And so one of the granddaughters was really into it and was painting away for all the different family members and um, the daughters were a little bit more reserved so it's that time for uh, clinicians to really go and, you know, provide a bit of that grief counselling to them and encourage them to step forward and... So one was super anxious about it all and you know cuz she knew very much that this was going to be one of those last memories she was going to have of her mum. So when all the family members had kind of done their paintings of their and their handprints I um I sent them all kind of outside. Sometimes the rooms can come, you know, they can be too full um and it becomes overwhelming for the loved ones that are really starting to Anticipate what this grief's going to look like. So, brought them all into the room, and what I wanted them to do was paint Mum's hand. And I told them to say your favourite memory of the patient and what you love most about them. So I just stepped to the side and I let each of each of the um, immediate family do that, and that was a really beautiful moment because they could just spend that time. Um, reflecting on their you know their favorite memory of that person um and it get it got very emotional and the um loved one you know said it back to them their favorite memory and what they loved most about them and that doesn't happen all the time but sometimes when family members are a bit more reserved and taking that step back it's sometimes nice to try to prompt them a little bit to Interact and you know take that moment away of oh we're just painting a hand and really destigmatize what's happening right now and really focus on you know that connection and that bond because when they look back at that that handprint you know they're always going to remember what they said during those moments and what that moment was to them um, and I think that's a really special connection and really helps those individuals um, to reflect. Um, and help with their grief that they're going through at the time. Um, at the end of that session, the patient had said, "Oh, I want to, I want to do one big one." So I ran off and got a bigger piece of paper, and um, she put uh, the patient put her hand in the middle, and then all of her family and her grandchildren around. And it's a really beautiful piece of artwork um, that they created on that day. Um, and she was very funny because she had said, I know exactly where that's to be hung. And, you know, she she really like was, even though she wasn't going to be there and wasn't going to be able to see where it was going to be hung in the house, she very much was still able to participate. And that's something that she'll always still be around and all the family will be able to take that time to reflect um, on On her and remember that special moment they had together. I think you know in a hospital setting things can become very clinical and I think it's a beautiful moment to take some time out of your busy clinical daily work to spend time with family members to help with that their grief process and taking that time to do some artworks to help with their grief um, because it's not an easy process and for some family members it's, it's going to be a big journey for them and this is something that they might never have experienced before um, and being in a hospital, it's, it's never nice um, and it's very clinical and it's very noisy so being able to create a, a safe space, a quiet space to do these um, memory making is fundamental
1: Joe, I, I always love to ask about first impressions and highlights of of after listening to that story.
2: I think it was a really interesting um, description of all the different things that we do when we're doing this death work in end of life care um, the hospital in the hospital settings you know um, she starts off beautifully explaining how they'd realise this person's increased frailty and, and increased admissions to the hospital were happening, which is often a great indicator that a person may be approaching the end of their life, particularly uh, if they've got a chronic health condition, which this person uh, did do. So that was one thing that I thought was really great and a great tool for social workers to use themselves um, when they're working on, in environments where you're having this ongoing contact with people, If it becomes more frequent, um, it might be an opportunity for you to say to your team, hey, what's going on here? Um, Is it looking like we're approaching the end of life? Because if we think about it in that way, um, then we have an opportunity to, to really put the hard yards in when it comes to that therapeutic intervention at this time.
1: Um, that's really interesting, because I, I and and so useful in terms of of planning for this this kind of work that you can actually be sowing the seeds even before this point. Joe, um, so for me, I I had this image of this social worker as a conductor in an orchestra. Um, there was so much that was going on that was you know the. the as we like to refer it, some of the magic behind the actual process. So, you know, just even things like encouraging the family to take ownership and the patient to make this space your own after she had given her the option of, would you like to spend the end of life at home, in our hospice, or here? So from get-go, patients got agency. This woman, I'm gonna call her the matriarch, because she 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 struck me as being the matriarch of this family. And giving her the option of where her end of life is going to take place, how she and the family can bring the familiar into it and how... I mean, we do that in the birth space. Why, of course, would we not be doing this in the end of life space and and creating an an environment that that is more comfortable and more homelike and perhaps even for some bringing the sacred into space um, and The other thing I really loved is the use of senses it wasn't just language and, and conversation. It was the the use of printmaking and the use of music that I, I wouldn't mind talking about a little a little after. But in terms of first impressions, they're, they're mine, Joe. And Joe, one other thing that, that struck struck me and I'd I'd love you to pick it up is this social worker clearly articulates uh, one of the theories that sit behind memory making and that was the continuing bond theory and i know this is your area joe so can you talk us through you know what is what is the evidence what is the what is the research that we can use to support this practice
2: so continuing bonds is one of my favorite theories because um it acknowledges that grief is ongoing and grief isn't a problem to be solved but an experience to be sh- uh, to be carried so it facilitates enabling um, families and patients to participate in um, memory-making, that's an opportunity to open up a discussion around grief and our ongoing grief around that. But Continuing Bonds also says that it's normal to stay connected to our loved ones, even though they're not physically here with us anymore. Um, We had bereavement theory Prior to continuing bonds, that talked about severing connection and um, uh, not having a relationship with anyone after that person after the death. And it's really interesting that when they did this research, they came to find that, um, in fact, continuing bonds may describe many of the grief related behaviours that we have in terms of holding on to items of our loved ones and the daily habits that we may continue. Um, or the private rituals, the conversations with the photographs or visiting the places that is close to them and you um, so that's a really interesting point as well. But I guess um, that continuing bonds also helps us cope with our grief and it it enables us to have discussions around grief that is uh, not pathologizing grief or you know uh, we're taking making sure that we're normalizing what grief is and validating people's experiences and the interesting thing about continuing bonds research is the researchers actually felt like the participants underreported how much of a continued bond they had with the person for fear of being um called mad or you know that there may have been um you know some adverse uh, implications for the the ongoing bond that they had with that person so that's what I find is really interesting about continuing bonds um, and I think so, all of us do it in some way shape or form and we probably don't have the language around knowing what it is um, families have different rituals around continuing bonds in my family for example people become birds which is just really interesting but now After um, my father died, the kids and I and everyone in my family thinks he's a magpie, so when the magpies are at home, everyone just says, G'day, Paulie, which is really nice for us and uh, for my kids, it normalises the ongoing connection to that person, even though they're physically not here. So that's really important. Um, Joe,
1: that's that's a a lovely description um, of... Of why we do what we do. And when I, when I, as I was listening to you, I was reflecting back on some of those um, things that happened in that memory making story that really support that. And, you know, yes, there was this beautiful artwork that she engaged both the family and the matriarch in this practice and made it a joint. A project if you like but some of the language Jo I thought was interesting and and quite beautiful when she was asking people to nominate a memory that they that they have a beautiful memory that they have of their mum and vice versa um that they can actually reflect on as they make the artwork, so earlier I'd mentioned it like there was just it's not just about the product, it was this beautiful linking of both the theory and the language to the process, knowing that when Mum passes away, this particular art piece is going to have a very, very strong link to this both her life but also that particular time that they they shared at the um at bedside
2: yeah and making um the environment setting it up to be as soothing as possible by you know bringing in the photos or the paintings from home there may have been blankets or or um you know changing the lighting or uh, asking she the the social worker did speak about the music as well being really important getting that person's favourite music happening is something that can really set set a mood. And I think if you think about what a busy hospital clinical environment looks like, social work are able to change that environment. We're able to turn down the lights. We're able to bring some peace. Uh, and we're able to instil a dignified environment for that person. You know, because we're just asking, what is it you love? I remember... Social worker had a wonderful question for that um for that person, and she said, "What's the most important thing for you at this time?"
1: Like, what a great question! And what does that look like? I think she followed that up. So a lovely kind of description, I guess, would have would have come through after after that question.
2: And then yes, Liz, the and then the patient said that the thing that was upsetting her was that she wanted to take the pain away from the family. Um, And that's a really hard thing for anyone to hear. But again, an opportunity for the social worker to kind of do a little bit of psychoeducation on grief and how important it is that um, as part of the process, we feel the feels, all the things that we feel. Um, You know, that's warden's work and um, the, the tasks of mourning. But again any opportunity this social worker had to do some psychoeducation around grieving for both the patient and the family she absolutely jumped in which i thought was amazing um she talked about some of the some of the daughters were having some of them were having a harder time um, and she, that gave her an opportunity to do some grief counselling and normalise that person's grief experience, validate what they're going through um, and talk about, you know, grieving styles, that intuitive, more emotional um, versus in, uh, instrumental, which is more practical and cognitive. So she did, the social worker did a wonderful job at really, um, you know, using every tool in her toolkit um, to, to support that family.
1: I, um, I absolutely agree with you, Joe. And I thought what a wonderful family and um, person to be doing this creative process with because from listening to her, it was something that she enjoyed doing throughout her life and enjoyed doing with her grandchildren. So what a beautiful activity to be doing at the end of life. But I also think it g- gives family and uh, the patient a focus too. You know, sometimes that end-of-life period can feel difficult to know how do I spend this time with mum. So to actually create a project together would have been great, right? So And especially whilst this woman was conscious. And I love the way that she was able to describe the process. I mean, it, even little tips, Jo, like, I always, um, you know, let them know that the first handprint is always a bit messy. This is a practice run, so to speak, um, and the more we 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 do it, the 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 I guess the more defined the handprint becomes. So little tips like that were really great to listen to. Um, and I also liked how she, I get a sense that she backed off a wee bit as a family we're engaging in it and I think that's that shows um such sensitivity to how we work with a family that we we know when to also step back and let the, the 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 family and the person actually direct it more engage in it more we step back in the background more the classic
2: social work dance isn't it in and out in and out I um I totally agree Liz and um I love that the, there was a granddaughter that kind of just took charge um, and for me that's really important because you know normalising um, this time for that person you know I'm not sure how old the granddaughter was but you know being able to enjoy an activity and and be uh, joyful at the same time as very sad is, is what's happening in that space and that's a really um, important thing for people to know that it's okay to be and feel the same two things, that duality at one time, um, because grief is complicated and that's what often happens, that we feel two things at once and it's really confusing. Um, but by undertaking these types of um activities like memory making, it's an opportunity for us to say that's, you know, to normalise that again. The thing that I really love also um, is, and I think we need to point this out, it's really important the opportunity for social workers to have some wonderful therapeutic engagement when they're working in very busy clinical settings. Um, And I'm deeply appreciative of this social worker prioritising end of life care over the other demands in the acute hospital setting. And I, I think it's really important that as social workers, we have a good sense of how we can justify that to managers or people who are more concerned about bed flow and discharge planning, as opposed to not only uh, supporting families and patients at end of life, but also filling up a social workers cup. Because we know this end of life work from our conversations with all of our colleagues really does fill us up and gives us an opportunity to engage in that um, relationship-based therapeutic intervention uh, on a busy hospital ward.
1: I think that's a wonderful point that you bring up, Joe. that this is nourishing work both for family, the patient and also the social worker. But I also recall this is very similar to how it was in the neonatal death space back in the early 80s, late 70s, where social workers had to really fight hard to justify why we were doing memory making with families at, you know, at at the death of a at the death of a baby um similarly to what you had said earlier we'd often you know prior to that babies were you know buried in unmarked graves mothers were told to get 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 on with life and maybe have another baby but now it's an established part of the neonatal death process and i think that's what i hear you saying that this is work that very much is um, important for both the social worker and our nursing colleagues to take on board. More and more people are dying in hospitals and this is a legitimate part of the work that we do both with the patient and the family. Joe, in, in kind of wrapping this up, I mean, you know, you and I could talk about this for days, but it this particular memory making process happened whilst the person the patient was alive but my understanding is that memory making both in COVID and post-COVID is happening not just in this space but in other spaces Joe, when the person has actually died is that right like that it actually is happening elsewhere in different clinical spaces?
2: Absolutely and I think it really depends on um, the ref- the referral for example or the uh, relationship that you have with the client I believe um, this social worker has uh, the amazing opportunity to do a lot of the pre-death work given her clinical um, environment so she has very strong relationships with her her patients and their family because she's known them for a very long time and you know I think the therapeutic benefit for the Patient obviously is much more significant when um, they can be involved, but also for the family. You know, when she talked about that life review, what's your favourite memory of mum? Everyone got really emotional, and um, that was a really hard conversation, but again, a time of reflection. And I'd be really curious to know um, what impact memory making has and and the activities facilitated by this for social worker has on the family long term and does it decrease their bereavement risk because they've been involved in this therapeutic um, intervention. The other thing that we haven't mentioned is you know, what's the intersection between art therapy, which is an established approach to caring at end of life for patients and families, but also how does that intersect with memory making as well? So there's a really cool research project in there for oh, someone. there's
1: two PhDs in, in those two alone, isn't <laughs> there? Yeah, yes.
2: Yeah, so um I think that it's clinician preference often when the memory making takes place. Some people are very... Are firm on, on whether it's pre or post death. For me, there's no hard and fast rule. Uh, it's what's best for the patient and the family and the opportunity. Um, often social workers may get a referral much too late and we cannot do the memory making pre-death, pre so it takes place after death. Um, there's challenges both pre-death and post-death when it comes to physically undertaking memory making. And that can absolutely impact on what you're able to do. I remember a circumstance where I went down to the mortuary with um, a colleague and we wanted to do some handprints, but the person had been deceased for quite a while and she was an older person and it was impossible to get a handprint. So we ended up doing thumbprints, which was still as appreciated by the family um and as, as highly valued like reflected in the research however um yeah so there are certainly advantages and disadvantages to both but um it just really depends on what you value um, at the time with that patient and with that family as a social worker
1: and joe listening to you I imagine that there are some similarities in in the actual intervention if you like whether the patient's alive or deceased in terms of how you Introduce choice into the matter. How you explain the process to the patient and/or family. How you um, incorporate what is known about the the person and the family in relation to how you offer um, the memory making. How you link the importance of this work to grief and mem- and and, and memorialising this person, and it's, that it's actually a useful part of the grief process. Um, and also, I think the area of, of encouraging ownership of actually creating and setting up the space as a social worker, but encouraging ownership of the process of family and or or the, the person who's, who's dying. So there are some kind of key things that cross over whether the person's alive or not. That's
2: right. And it absolutely is connected to um, Warden's tasks of mourning, you know, Task one is to accept the reality of the loss. So if you're working with um, the social worker and your family and your mum who is dying, you're able to love her and care for her while you're doing those prints or taking those photos, whatever it might be, Um, just the same as if you are doing it when she's died, you know, how do we come to terms with accepting the reality of that loss other than that physical um, being with that person and and the and you know coming to see and touch and smell how things um, may be changed or not changed how do we how do we um, use memory making to integrate you know that reality of loss uh, for the patient and family you know there's huge benefits to undertaking that but also you know it gives us an opportunity we have we have a keepsake that we can then um, help to feel the feels again you know process the pain or whatever it is we're feeling when we look at that thing or we hold that thing or we listen to that music whatever it might be and then also you know warden's last task is about finding an enduring connection to the deceased so if you've got their handprint or you know a lock of their hair you have that connection you can you can hold that and you can put your hand
1: over that handprint and feel connected to whoever that person might be joe Um, Thank you so much for introducing another wonderful grief theory, so Warden's Tasks of Mourning. And I, I really thank you for helping to create this episode that I think will be important for both the undergraduate social worker as well as the postgraduate social worker because, as we've heard, grief process is changing and morphing, but it's still underpinned by some very valuable theory there. Um, and we know that you know many of our undergrad social workers don't get this in their course and so what I would say is here you go here's your little how-to piece um, and if you're interested in end-of-life care this is a beautiful beautiful description embedded with theory that we hope you enjoy and um, can use in your practice so Joe McElveen thank you for um, sharing this episode with us
2: thanks Liv so great
1: to be here
0: Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, We would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way, you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening.